You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. We get the freedom and privilege to open up God's Word today together. So let's do that, and let's pray that we'll hear from the Lord here as we continue in our study of Mark. We're in chapter 15, and you can head to verse 21 is where we'll be reading from. Just a little bit, Mark 15, 21, and we'll read through 32 today. And as you're heading there, we've got a picture last week turned in from Micah. Right? This is Micah's picture, and he's got down there, who do we study about? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That one that the soldiers mocked and spit on and put that purple robe on and that crown of thorns, who was, in fact the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So thank you, Micah, for drawing that for us. And other kids, as you draw out, I appreciate you giving those to me at the end. Put your, do me a favor, just put your name on it. And, uh, but I'm glad you guys are part of this. And so as you've got that white paper in front of you, kids, or grab something from your mom or dad and a pen and, and listen to what goes on and try and catch what you hear and try to draw it out on, on your paper. Let me read God's word here, verse, starting verse 21 and then through 32. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I pray again for us. Lord, we just ask again as we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that your spirit reveals the hidden things of God. Lord, we don't want to be blind going into even familiar territory. Lord, we don't want to be blind with our eyes and we don't want to be blind with our heart. Lord, to catch a glimpse of the majesty of the King of creation, who humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, and was nailed to a cross. So Lord, I pray you would work through these weak words of mine to convey the great truth of Jesus Christ in the time we have together. We're asking your spirit to do this, to work in our hearts through this. In your name we pray, amen. We are moving today towards what the Apostle Paul speaks of as the 
the one thing he will boast in. The one thing Paul desires to know among the Corinthians when he wrote to the Corinthians. Jesus Christ and him crucified. His crucifixion. And it's good for us to ask why. Paul, why why was this the focal point of Paul's ministry? If I'm to know nothing else, I want to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, though he didn't have eloquent words, he was in weakness, he was in fear, he was in trembling. This is the one thing that he wanted to know and to make known. He would write this in Galatians 6.14, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul saw in the crucifixion of Jesus his own crucifixion to the world and the world to him. Paul was in fact a new creation through the crucifixion. God's gospel is based on the cross. It's one of the most common symbols of Christianity. We've got it behind me. It sits up here every week. Some of you wear necklaces with the cross on it or you have different places. It's that symbol. It's easily recognized. Some people draw it. This one event is the magnificent, infinite display of God's grace in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God Himself in the form of man being nailed to a wooden cross to suffer as the perfect God-man. A substitute for our penalty, the penalty of sinners that we deserve before a holy and righteous God. And why does Paul say Jesus was crucified? A couple places. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's powerful. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought with a price. A purchase occurred on the cross. 2 Corinthians 8.9 For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. There's a poverty to Christ and the cross that becomes our riches. Or Galatians 1, 3-5. Grace to you, Paul says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory goes to God for Jesus who gave Himself on the cross for our sins. Why do we talk about all this? Why say this up front? Because to be honest, you and me, we can get lost in the details that we're going to read about, that we have read about in the book of Mark. Mark doesn't write long details. We're not reading an encyclopedia of the details of what happened at the crucifixion but there are plenty. Who carried the cross uh, to Golgotha? Simon, we're going to look at that. Uh, where was Jesus crucified? Golgotha, or the place of a skull. What's that? Uh, why'd they divide up his garments? They crucified. What is crucifixion? All these details Mark gives us, kind of almost like there's five of them. It's like boom, 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 detail, detail, detail. 
And the temptation here, as we're going to see in some of the places, I've got some pictures, uh, at least in one place in Jerusalem, the temptation tempts us to worship or look at the physical aspects, perhaps kissing a wooden cross, instead of seeing the more spiritual dimension of what happened and the one who died on the cross. We get, can get lost in the details of it and just focus on the cross or, or the suffering. And we want to hear that and we want to hear those things. We don't want to pass by these details. Mark gives, them, gives us this in Holy Scripture. But hopefully I want to help guard us and my own heart to come away in awe and wonder, not just of the details, but of who they point to, the one to whom all this points to, the one that Paul says, I know nothing, I want to know nothing among you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's right where we're at in Mark. To do that, I want you to turn to Mark 10.45. We, we will get to this passage, but Mark 10.45, perhaps, some of you have memorized this, awesome. Perhaps you need encouragement. You've been wanting to memorize one verse this year, and December's around the corner. This would be a great one. Mark 10.45, as you're going there, we've quoted it often, but I think this verse um, will give us some footholds, you know, footholds, rock climbing or whatever, you know, foothold or a, or a handhold, something to grab onto, to kind of hold onto as, as we see the details. And I want to try to point out some of the details of the Mark 15 passage to us. We want to hold on to some of these as we go through this, and it's in Mark 10.45. And the context here is that of service. Uh, James and John, they're wanting to sit, remember, at the right and left hands of Jesus and and Jesus is teaching them about serving. And he says, whoever is going to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first, you want to be first, you must be the slave of all. And then verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's two aspects in this verse that we're going to want to carry with us back into Mark 15. Two of them. One, Jesus is in the act of giving his life as a ransom for many. He, that's what we're watching play out in chapter 15. There's this ransom going on. Call it atonement, the penal substitution, a sacrifice, a giving of Jesus' life, paying the penalty for our sins by his death. It's the central work of Jesus on the cross. But along with that, and keeping that central, there's another theme. And you see it in this verse in 1045. Jesus shows us an example of what it looks like to serve, what it looks like to suffer, how to suffer well. And he shows us that. And Peter talks about this. You don't have to go there, but 1 Peter 2, verses 20 through 23 say this. Peter says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself 
to him who judges justly. So we want to hold on to, as we read through Mark 15, this great work of Christ on the cross to redeem us, purchase us from our slavery to sin. And hold on also this example before us of suffering unjustly as we look at the events of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, some might just say, well, he's just a good example. That's what we just follow him. I'm not saying that we're looking at the main, what does his crucifixion mean for sinners? And then alongside that, following after 1 Peter 2, what does the suffering teach us as disciples of Christ? And I mentioned there's five details, if you will, as we hold on to those two truths kind of going through Mark 15, if you want to turn back there again, verse 21. And we'll look at those five as we get towards verse 26, and then next week we'll, we'll complete the passage I read and get through the end of it some of the others that are, that are walking by the cross here. Um, I, I am slowing down here. I, I don't want to zoom through uh, this area. I think there's, there's much we can glean, and so um, we're going slow. You'll just have to just hang in there. You can read to the end, certainly. Read it again and again, read to the end. But that's where we're at. So look at verse 21 here in Mark 15. As we look at some of these details that, that Mark gives us. The first one, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Where is Cyrene, you might ask? I asked this. We have the pictures up here. I think, it, yeah, wait, we got it. I have circled it. It's in Africa, northern Africa. He's, Simon's a Cyrenian. He's coming to carry this cross of Jesus. Now, I don't think Simon's coming in from Cyrene. I think we don't know whether Simon lived in uh, Jerusalem at the time. Was it, maybe he was there for the Passover festival? But whatever it is, Simon comes in. And you can kind of see where he was from. And Simon here is compelled or forced into service to carry this cross, which means two things. Number one, what does that mean? What's it saying about Jesus? Though he's He's not mentioned. The cross is mentioned. It means Jesus was at a point of exhaustion in this whole ordeal, the scourging and the beating, that he could not carry it himself. And that gives us a picture. We're not watching a movie. We're, we're, we're walking along with Mark here, and it gives us a picture of the state of our Savior also tells us in God's providence, a man named Simon happens to be coming into the city. And Mark gives us the detail. He's the father of who? Alexander and Rufus. Um, it's kind of interesting. If you just want to look, Romans 16, 13. If you want to look there, if you're quick and want to go to Romans 16, it's the last chapter of Romans. Paul's greeting all these different people. Romans 16, 13, on his list of greetings, who does he greet? Rufus. Pretty simple, not very big here. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing here. Simon is compelled into service. He carries the cross of the king, and I wonder if this changed the life of Simon to where his kids, Alexander, 
perhaps, and Rufus may be known. We don't know. We're speculating. Perhaps it changed these lives of them. One commentator talks about um, Simon literally. You know, Jesus says, take up your cross. He does not take up his cross and follow me. Simon literally does that with the cross of Christ. A bit of a picture of discipleship in action. Mark's kind of showing this. And I think it had a, an effect on the, the family of Simon of Cyrene, whoever else he was here. I think God was intervening. The detail of Mark. And it shows us the servant king, the state of this servant king. Verse 22, we go on. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. We call it Calvary. It's Latin. Or Golgotha, Aramaic, place of the skull. Different words for this place. We want to think on where they brought Jesus for just a bit. We think, where was this? Again, multiple ideas exist in this. I think we've got some pictures here of where this is. Now, this is a picture I found of Jerusalem. Um, Hopefully you can see kind of the city of Jerusalem. You can certainly see the big square box there of the temple. And if you go left over there, Herod's palace, and I'm not going to draw out a route where Jesus went. I'm not sure myself. You can study that where, you know, there's a Via Del Rosa possibly in those places. But I've numbered them, one, two, three, different places here where they think this Golgotha, and I think there's more than this, but where it could have been. The first, number one, is the traditional site. It's, it's the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Maybe some of you have been to Israel, you've been here. It's a church built on the site where supposedly all this took place. It's the traditional, this is where it is. And, and where there are traditional sites, they build a church. So this one, there's a church there. It's not that the church was there back at this point, but it's built um, over it. I think if we go to the next picture, we've got a picture of that church. Yeah, thank you guys. We're, we're working them hard back there today. This is a church, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, kind of a side profile view. So beneath, you can kind of see where uh, maybe the tomb of Christ was that this has been built on. Maybe there's a rock. I read somewhere it's built on an old quarry. So maybe this is the place uh, where he was. Um, okay, go to the next one here. There you go. Now this is the next place. It's called Gordon's Cavalry. Cal- uh, Cal- <laughs> I don't mess it up. Calvary, thank you, not cavalry. Gordon's cavalry. Now, uh, Calvary. Uh, this is, Gordon didn't find this, but it's named kind of after him. And there's depressions. If you look at this picture, we're in another place. This is place number two here. There's some, if you kind of got to look hard, but there's a couple indentations in the rock, maybe a mouth down there that kind of looks skullish like. That's another place where maybe this was, maybe this rock was. And it's, this is all dealing with, we're trying to figure out where the walls, or they are, where the walls of the city used to be because Jesus crucified outside the walls, so where could this have been? Some think the church I just showed you, well, that could have been, it was in the walls. Some people think, no, it was out of the walls, and lots of debate. So this is Gordon's uh, Calvary. Uh, one more. Okay, this is another place. Now we're place number three. We're kind of northeast of the temple. This is out another place. You can kind of see this domed type rock there. Thank you, red light, uh, right there. And it kind of looks like in the Greek, the word for skull, at least it's translated skull here, 
could be cranion or like cranium. So it's more of a rounded. So out by the lion's gate, perhaps this is where. And maybe they crucified him because I think from this vantage point, I guess you could look back at the temple and maybe see the curtain. When it, when it splits, you could see that happen from this place. That's another idea of where these places were. All of them, they're trying to answer where, based on the walls. Hebrews talks about uh, Jesus suffering outside the gate. So where are these things? But I want to go to the next picture because I want you to look into this church of the Holy Sepulchre where I, I think this is probably where it was. i just take a guess. I think that's traditionally where it is. But look at these pictures. This is the site, they think, where the cross was. Do you see how ornate this place is? There's people lined up. If you go to the next picture, there's a little... Go back one, I'm sorry. Go back. See the lady kneeling in there? That's... Okay, we're going we're gonna to go. We're going to zoom in here. Now go to the next picture. All right, and now you see this plate, and in the middle of this plate is where they, at least they think, where the cross was. Okay, again, it's interesting to know the details. What's the danger here? Worshiping the site. He's not there. He's risen. Worship Jesus. If I went to Israel, I'd probably go look at this place. But the danger is, oh, if I could, maybe I can touch that place where he was. He's not there. He's risen. He's at the right hand of the father that's the danger of some of the details that's why i said we're looking at details it's good you get an idea and details um, archaeology these things though they they do help in proving we can prove where these places were and they help with apologetically looking at the bible they help give us the the, the main reason that i learned of archaeology is context they help us understand what this was like and that's where we're at so I ask, is there anything to Mark? Why does Mark and the others call it Golgotha and then give us the other meaning? It's called Golgotha the place of the skull. Perhaps it looked like a skull. I don't know. But what do you think of? And I know Halloween is here and the, the, we see skulls around us. What do you think of? We see that. We think of death. And I want to propose to you that this place where they are taking Jesus epitomized that the wages of sin is death. And here's Jesus walking towards it. Praise God. He marches, marches towards this place, however he could march or somehow get himself there towards this place. What would they have done here? This is a place of crucifixion. It's a place where people have trespassed. They've con- they're condemned. They're judged. I think it gives us a picture of the current reigning piece of creation that is death. Romans 5. Just listen to Romans 5.17, and I'll read verses 20 through 21. In light of where Jesus is going, this place of the skull, this place of dying and death. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans 5 says this. 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Do you hear the reign of death in the world? Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus 
Christ. It goes on to say, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see him marching towards Calvary, towards Golgotha, this place of death where death reigns. Our king is taking over that reign. It no longer will reign because of his reign and his kingship. So I think symbolically here, we see even the reign of sin and death. It's coming to an end in the march of the servant king heading to Golgotha, to Calvary. Verse 23. I think this is as they're there, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Here's what one commentary helps us understand. Wine, why would you mix myrrh? Maybe why didn't he take it? Why did they offer it? It says this, pious women of Jerusalem normally prepared a solution like this one. In verse 23, this wine mixed with myrrh. The women uh, prepared a solution like this one and offered it to those being executed to dull their pain. Uh, It goes on to say, Jesus chooses to endure the full force of the agony of crucifixion. And myrrh is said to have had narcotic effects. That's hard to tell here. Was it the soldiers? Was it the women who offered this drink? I think we could speculate and go with the women are offering this. It's just part of what they offer to these being crucified. This excruciating ordeal. At least have a little bit of wine with some myrrh to, to dull the effects of this. But Jesus will not. One other commentator says, Jesus desired to drink to the full the cup from his father's hand. The servant king refuses the narcotic and calming drink in order to drink fully the cup of wrath on the cross. That's the king. Verse 24. And here now we read, they crucified him. We'll look at that again in a bit. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is the soldiers dividing these up. Talk about the crucifixion again in a moment. But here we see Psalm 22, 18 fulfilled. I want to go there with you. We're going to get familiar with Psalm 22, I hope, because it's quoted quite a bit in these last hours of Jesus' life and what's happening as Jesus fulfills the Word of God. If you want to look at Psalm 22, there we're going to look at verse uh, 16 through 18. There's other places in here. This is a psalm of David. It's really a psalm of agony. There's insult going on. And, and yet in the end, this psalm turns around of the great rescue of God. It ends on a hope, hopeful note here. And I want to read to you verses 16 through 18. I think having read our passage in Mark, you'll find this familiar now. It says, think of this in, in light of Jesus fulfilling. For dogs encompass me. Company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, verse 17 says. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast 
lots. What's interesting is this psalm, and this is not original with me, but as I read about this, this psalm works backward. If you look at 18, we see the connection to, to what is fulfilled in these soldiers dividing up the garments, the clothing of Jesus, casting lots. You win that one. I take that one. I think it's John maybe that talks about the four of them there. Um, maybe four soldiers dividing these up. But if you look at Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18, go backwards from there to verse 7. Look at verse 7. Uh, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Did you read that today? Do you remember reading that? We read that. We'll look at it more next week. They wag their heads. And then if you go back further, we're kind of reading from the middle back to the beginning. Even the first verse, we find, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words uttered by Jesus that we have, lastly recorded by Mark in in the next section that we'll uh, look at. Where is it? Verse 34. There's a fulfillment of this psalm in Jesus. In fact, as we've said, there's a fulfillment of all of Scripture uh, in Jesus. He is the greater king. As David wrote Psalm 22, this is the greater David. This is the forever on the throne David, the king of kings, as Micah showed us, and the Lord of lords. And this great king is suffering in the place of sinners. And so they take his garments. They cast lots for them. This is from Jesus, and they take these clothes from him. It just makes his words all the more. Jesus is living out, practicing what he preaches. Listen to Luke 6.29. Jesus says this, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. It's Jesus He's living it out, what he says. He's not just a king that says, go do this. He lives it out before us. And we see, and here's maybe that example that we see of Jesus before us. I'm inclined to think perhaps, and the pictures aren't going to show this, and that's okay. Maybe they left a loincloth on. I, I wonder if they took all of his clothes. We don't know. John's Gospel says this, says the soldiers took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, which, you know, if you read, my study Bible talks about the tunic is that piece closest to the skin. I don't know. We don't have pictures from this time. Think of that, though. All his garments gone? The shame of that? Think of... Remember we talked about the crown of thorns? Remember that curse from Adam and Eve and the fall and the curse of thorns God placed on the earth? Think of the nakedness that Adam and Eve felt when they had sinned. All of a sudden they realized their shame. Is our servant king going all the way to take on our sin? I think so. He's enduring his own shame. The servant king gives his own clothes, gives his honor for the sake of sinners and for his glory. Well, verse 25, uh, we saw that verse 24 said they crucified him. Verse 25 echoes this again, gives us a time period. It was the third hour. 
when they crucified him. Now, we can talk afterwards about third hour and timing and all this sort of thing. We just don't have time to get into that. But think about this crucifixion of Jesus and what was going on in this Roman crucifixion. And I have some help from others, and I'm just going to simply read what they have said to give us an idea of what does it mean that he was crucified. One commentary says this. His Roman readers, that is Mark's, Mark's writing, Roman readers, it says, they say, needed no elaboration and he offered none. Mark doesn't give us an explanation of all these things. They say this, normally a condemned man was stripped, except possibly for a loincloth, so maybe, laid on the ground and both outstretched forearms were nailed to the crossbeam. Then this beam was raised and fastened to an upright post already stuck in the ground and the victim's feet were nailed to it. A wooden peg partway up the post on which the victim sat helped support his body. Death from extreme exhaustion and thirst was painful and slow and usually came after two or three days. Sometimes death was hastened by breaking the victim's legs. Another comments. The means of crucifixion varied, and Mark does not specify. It is from John 20:25 20, uh, that we know that nails rather than ropes were used. We think maybe there's some pictures of being held up by ropes, but remember Thomas, I want to see where those nails were. Nails were used. Let alone, can you think of one nail going through and the pain of that? I'm not trying to be funny. We just we we get a sliver and we're hurting. Here's a nail here, and a nail here, and a back scourged and open, and nails or a nail through the legs somewhere down near the feet. One other commentary says this, crucifixion generally generally killed by asphyxiation. One became too weary to keep pulling one's frame up on the crossbeam. The diaphragm was increasingly strained and eventually one became unable to breathe. It was the worst way to die and for a purpose, right? I mean, you for the Romans, you see this pain and you see this and you're going to follow what they're going to tell you to do. It's the way I think of keeping order in their rule and their reign. Keep in mind, this is just, this is just the physical suffering of Jesus. How much more, I ask, is the weight of sin and the curse of God, that the curse we deserve, put on Jesus? Look at verse 26 as we begin to close. Kind of a hinge point, I think, in this chapter. Why we keep talking about this servant king. It says the inscription of the charge against him read this, king of the Jews. Was he? Oh, yeah. Did they think so? No. There's a picture today in these five events, descriptions we've looked at of Mark. We see this servant king. And lastly here, the servant king that's crucified. Jesus was beaten and scourged. Can't even carry the cross to Calvary. We looked at where Golgotha is. 
Jesus who would endure the pain fully, not even taking the medicine available. He bears the suffering and wrath of God. And Jesus gives his life while they take his garments. And at the third hour, he's crucified. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus served by suffering. He endured the cross. He endured persecution. He set us an example for even our own suffering. Again, First Peter says this, when he was reviled, remember he didn't revile in return. He's, he's really silent here, isn't he? I mean, there's, there's no, you can look at the other accounts, he does not speak back here. He talks at certain parts, but it's not to revile, it's not to say, do you know who I am and that sort of thing. He did not revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Can you trust God in the midst of your suffering? Can you love your enemy like Jesus did? The example we see here? By God's grace and his work in our life, yes. But also, Jesus was crucified. That one message that will define the ministry of Paul, I know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We want to understand the physical details of the crucifixion, the timing, the placement, to understand the context and the physical suffering, just what He endured on a physical level. But we don't want to worship their creation or the places. We want to worship him. We want to worship Jesus who bore our sins on Himself on the cross. We're going to sing about the wonderful cross. Let's worship the King, the servant King. He's crucified for sinners such as you and me. And then let us worship Him by living our lives as He lived and showed us on the cross. Let me pray for us. Lord, I admit, I don't even understand the half of what you went through. I don't think I understand or remember the depth of what a Roman crucifixion was like or the pain you endured or the mocking or the beating or the scourging and the physical side of it. You are a wonderful king that would serve by your grace. Nothing in us deserves this act of love. You are gracious. You are a God of grace who keeps steadfast love to those he's called. Lord, I pray again anyone in this room who's not called on you to have your blood and your garments, to have your clothing of righteousness clothe them, would they call on you today and repent from that sin and claim the righteousness that is theirs in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, we would live lives that we, like Paul, would proclaim to those around us that we would know nothing. We don't want to know how good we are at something or to boast in ourselves, but we want to boast that Jesus Christ is King and Lord. He's been crucified and He's risen again. Lord, guide us to proclaim that message to our neighbors, 
and our friends and that, that person you keep bringing in our life before us. May we proclaim with joy the servant king.